Hello, welcome to Exploring the Heart of Change with me, Dr. Paul Taylor Pitt. Change happens. How we respond to it can sometimes take us by surprise, even if the change seems positive. I've spent my career working with organisations, teams and individuals who want to make change happen. And in this podcast, I'll be speaking with people who have felt the breath of change up close. People who've made a change and regretted it or loved it. People who make change happen in communities and organisations. People who change happen to, whether they wanted it or not. Their stories are all different. And at the end of each one, I pose the same question. Can we find art at the heart of change? You can find out more about me and my work at drpaultaylorpitt.com. And for now, just sit back, relax, enjoy the stories, and let's explore the heart of change together. This podcast is brought to you by Metamorphosis Limited. With 25 years of helping people, teams and organisations to grow, develop, change and learn more about themselves, our philosophy is to be more you. That's when amazing things happen. It's a type of metamorphosis when you're still recognisably yourself. Metamorphosis. We're a specialist consulting practice offering organisation development from team to whole system. We offer performance and somatic coaching for one-to-one and teams. We offer mentorship, research, exploration. Change is our purpose. Curiosity is our fuel and creativity is our process. Get in touch at metamorphosis.com. On this episode, I'm talking with Steve Chapman, having just the most beautiful conversation about becoming, about improvisation. And the conversation explores change from lots of different angles. Um, Steve talks about when he made change happen, particularly through leaving a stable job and navigating some unexpected challenges, and also times when change has happened to him. I love that Steve describes change as a perpetual process of becoming rather than lots of discrete events. So you're going to be really inspired by Steve's approach, his curiosity and how he responds to the unpredictable ideas that life throws at him. It's a great way to get a really rich understanding of change and how we can cultivate resilience through the unexpected aspects of life. He's a wonderful artist, he's a fantastic person and he's a good friend. So I'm really excited for Steve to introduce himself to you. I wonder how you would like people to know you. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I still don't know how to describe myself in an eloquent way. But um, if I'm forced to, I will say I'm an artist, I'm a writer, I'm a speaker. I'm interested in human beings, I'm interested in not knowing I'm interested in exploring the counterintuitive. Um, I guess my art, I'm known for drawings and paintings and street art and strange conceptual projects like the world's first silent podcast featuring special guests um, and the globally viral Not a Lost Cat poster. So a broad range of things. And I do coaching and I've done... I mean, this is a podcast about change, so I've forgotten the most important bit. I did a (laughs) master's in organisational change at Astrid years ago, and I taught on that master's, and I've taught and consulted on, I don't know, large-scale, small-scale organisational change and cultural change. So I think that's probably the summary. (laughs) Yeah. I just forget about that bit. I think it's great in a way, because that's not how you're defining yourself anymore. No. You're not saying, I'm the person who... Did this at Ashridge and uh, lectured and did the, you know you're kind of going actually how I am is who I am right now yeah and it's it used to be a thing that really frustrated me I think that I was deficient I couldn't describe it eloquently mm. and people would get confused and now it's like, I don't care really mm. it's like if I'm saying oh yeah I tell a story about facilitating complex dialogue around the world on difference and belonging 
really edgy Bohemian dialogue. They go, but you're an artist. You do silly drawings and vice versa. <laughs> and it's like, you can do more than one thing. Yeah. And both are true. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's all this so much more stuff. Just thinking about that today, actually, I wrote a couple of things about the limits we put on ourselves, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and how limiting they can be, as well as really safe and lovely and um, nourishing. They can be little prisons where we yeah. go, oh, no, I couldn't do that because I'm not that person. No. And that seems to be where people get stuck with websites and branding when they're starting their own organisation, thinking it has to be pinned down and stay the same forever. My my entire, if you call it a brand, I don't know if I'd even call it that, it's just been sticking bits on and ripping bits off and adding bits and getting rid of bits. I don't think it's ever been static. Um, but it took a lot, a long time to let go of trying to pin it down. And I also wonder if, and this is coming from a place of not knowing about branding, I would also see your brand as how people talk about you. So in a way, it's it's a bit out of your control. Yeah. And even if you think that you want to be perceived in a particular way, people will talk about you and go, oh, yeah, that's Steve. He's this, this, this and this. Yeah. And that's how your brand gets out in the world. Yeah. And I love that there's a fluidity to that for you, that you're, that, yeah, it needs to change. It's not one thing. And that's, I guess that's why we're here to talk about change. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of the abstract. People will pour into it and make their own project onto it, whatever they need in that moment. It's like when mm. I do art that's not about anything in particular, people have such vivid descriptions of what it's about. It's like, okay, if that's what, if that's the sense you're making of it, that's right. Mm. So maybe I just have an abstract brand. I don't know. And I love that whenever we talk, we go straight in. <laughs> There's yeah, no small no, exactly. talk. There's no that's, like, oh, you I, know, how was your journey? What was the weather no, like? We're already in it. Straight into it. Yeah. Um, and I, I really appreciate that. I find, I find small talk really difficult not just boring i mean psychologically and i think it's part of my neurodiversity i just find it excruciating mm. really like the question of what do you do i mean a dinner party with people i don't know that we can't leap in like like we do whenever we meet um that's my idea of hell mm. i mean whereas i saw you the other day you came to the market i was running and saw the feelings a real thing and you said oh what's that one about like it was one of the first things you said and i said oh it's a conversation i've been having with my psychotherapist about paying attention to feeling we're straight in yeah i appreciate that <laughs> i'd like so that if I. someone if someone if i went to a networking event and instead of if the first question was so what do you think happens after we die mm. something like that would make a huge yeah. difference yeah Try my it. printers my printers just it, it sort of wakes up and makes noises every now and then. That's what it was doing nice. in the background. So if we just give it a few seconds, it will stop. Oh, no, I didn't hear it. And everything's welcome. And actually, that's a helpful reminder about some of the principles, I guess, about both this conversation and this podcast and, and thoughts on change. Yeah. Because I think change can be surprising. So actually, whatever comes up in this space is welcome, whether it's the printer deciding to say hello or suddenly, you know, a delivery arrives or whatever. It is, you know, everything is welcome in this yeah. space. It's not about saying, actually, there are things that we don't want here nice, like because that. that's what life is about. And, you know, change can be unpredictable. So we haven't talked about what we're going to talk about. I don't know what you're going to share. Um, what I would, the structure I would offer is that I'd like to invite you to think about change in terms of your relationship to it first. And then we can maybe hear a couple of stories about when you initiated a change, like yeah. when you were a change maker, and then a time when change happened to you, you were on the receiving end, like as a change taker. And then yeah. we're going to finish by seeing if we can explore change with some kind of artistic representation. Yeah. Nice. And, you know, change also can be hard to control, but there's always an end point whether the change itself comes to an end or we come to an end. Yeah. And so there is an end point to this conversation, which uh, if I look at my clock, we've got a maximum of 45 minutes from now. And I think wherever we get to, we just stop. Yeah. Because that's how things happen. Yeah. Sometimes you just stop. So how does that sound like as a bit of a boundary for the conversation? No, I like that because it starts to really allude to how, how I think about change. It's like we can think mm. of it in such a mechanistic way. And even that, the questions about a time when I made change happen or change happened to me, um, I'm thinking, I obviously, I understand what you mean, but I'm thinking, I don't, I don't understand that. It's like mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't perceive of change in, in that way. 
And it's it's like I'm participating in a perpetual changing of mm. everything all of the nice. time. And I'm simultaneously being influenced by it and influencing it. Yeah. Um, and I'm in control of it and not in control of it. So it just feels like a being part of a perpetual improvisation, um, mm. really, it, it, in that sense. And it's That's like, such a good wonder- introduction because one yeah. of the things, the first thing I was going to ask about change and your relationship to it maybe <laughs> involves a little bit of improvisation. I want you to imagine that you are in a relationship with change yeah. and change says to you, actually, I think we need to go for couples counselling. Yeah. I'm wondering in the room, what would change say about you to the therapist? Um. I think change might say that um, we have we have a lot in common. We mm-hmm. have so much in common. Um, that change loves me deeply. We have we have some great conversations. We share philosophies. But the thing that really makes change want to be the couples therapy is I keep having moments of getting seduced by things that are overly concrete. And it's like, oh no, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm getting it wrong. Maybe this existential underpinning philosophical belief I've got is wrong. And so change would just want to say, why can't you just trust me that we're in this together? I think because it is mm. seductive, isn't it? Certainty sells. Um, and I think I stay awake to not falling into those traps, but it's really difficult when you live in a world that's obsessed with, mechanistic units of tangible change and guaranteed mm. results and shortcuts and five-step processes so mm. i think that's it, what yeah. what change would say in that room i'm interested in who the the uh therapist is for this what, what do you think they are who are they what are they like um i i think it's a small squirrel that just sits there nodding and not saying anything so, mm. yeah why are they a small squirrel and not a big squirrel um, I, I think they deliberately understated to look meek and mild and they don't say anything. But then what they do is at the end of the 45 minutes, they just scurry out, even if you're mid-sentence. It's like a very disciplined, <laughs> small squirrel. A disciplined, small squirrel. Yeah, that's what I reckon. Amazing. So I love I love your take that change is not mechanistic because there is there is a bias, I guess, in my questions about the time that you were a change maker and a change taker. But I also know we we share some history of working in the same field yeah. of organizational development, which was often described about um, managing change or yeah. implementing change, which I've always really struggled with. Yeah. And so my question about a time when you were a change maker is more about when was a time when you thought you were making a change yeah. happen, even if it didn't. And as a change taker, it's like, what was the moment of surprise when you were like, oh, everything has now changed in that moment? Yeah. And because change itself is uh, unpredictable, um, I'm going to use a little random way of getting into the conversation, which is just by flipping a card. And whichever way up it faces, we'll start with either change maker or change taker. So... uh, the card I've picked is, these are from my archetype cards. This is a seeker who is thirsting for wisdom and truth wherever they are. So if the seeker lands face up, we start with change maker. If it lands face down, change taker. Okay. Wish I had a sound effect, but I'm, I might put one in. I'll make but one. Like a random, yeah. <laughs> yeah, make one. The sound of a small squirrel. Yeah. Go on then. You have to flick it out. Whoop. So change maker change maker tell me about a time when you thought you were making a change happen so it i will answer that question before i go off on a quick tangent because i still think the questions make make sense and i was thinking about this that the improviser's mindset it for me is always that whatever's happening or going on or changing it's what is the offer here what is the invitation here so even if the unexpected happens what is the invitation? And I think the difference is if I'm a change maker, I'm open to that um, invitation and I can spot it and I can stay calm and I can see a way out of it. Whereas if I'm uh, resisting that or it feels like change is being done to me, it's just I'm not seeing the options. I think it still works. Um, but as a change maker, I have no short-term memory either. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so the- I guess within that, a time when 
what, what I guess I'm hearing is something about actually this isn't just about the change itself it's about your internal response to it yeah and if yeah. it's in a place where you're like yeah there's an opportunity there's something good that can come from it you've got a bit of control of it then yeah. that might make you feel like you're more of a yeah, maker yeah. of change well I mean I think the obvious one that comes to mind is um leaving a job mm. um leaving a inverted commas stable proper job and i always i think of my life by choice sort of like, yeah by choice like um, as in going i'm off as a you know you weren't restructured or no. offered redundancy no i mean there was no good sensible logical reason to leave <laughs> um and i spent 20 i went straight from the world of was straight from school into the world of work and stayed in one organization for 20 years um but i think what kept me there was self-doubt and that self-doubt stopped me from, again, in that, that improvisation mindset, stopped me from seeing alternatives, stopped me from seeing mm. all these other things flashing around. And it, after, it was just, it was working with a good boss and then starting to do some training with the OD, um, NTL Institute, uh, mm -hmm. which you, we both know and are involved in, and then going on to do my master's at Ashridge. Just starting to not, yeah, knock some edges off that self-doubt. Um, mm. So I was able to be open to the invitation to change. And it's just, it was just a complete gut feel. It's an instinct. Like I I have these conversations still internally with myself. It's like my gut, my gut feels saying, right, I guess we're leaving, aren't we? And my head's going, <laughs> what, what are you on about? Hold on. <laughs> and it was just that moment of lots of little things. And this is where mm. I, th I don't think of change as a big event, that one day I thought that. Everything mm. that had gone before that, um, everything that was going on at that time led to it. And it was just saying to my boss, well, I'm going to leave. And then thinking, what am I doing in my head? It's like, why are you cutting your arms and legs off? This is this is a serious thing. Um, but trusting that gut instinct. So leaving a senior director job with a car, with a pension, with a salary, um, and I mean, everyone thought that I'd taken voluntary redundancy because that's that's the sensible way of doing it. And yeah. it's like, well, what's what's your plan? Um, you must be financially secure. And it's no, I'm not in the slightest. This mm. is the most stupid idea ever, but I can't not do it. Mm. Um, so that that was how that that came about. And then it's just having committed to it. One of one of my uh, mantras in all of my work is to leap, then look. Mm. And it's just like, so I'd, I'd handed in my notice. It was happening. It's like. What do I do now? And again, the thing that I find really helpful is to not, and I'm, I'm good at most of the time, is to just not panic. Mm. It's just to breathe and go, if I just follow this gut instinct, something will happen. And then I started doing some associate work with people and then various other things. And, um, and it just led to a series of changes, I think, where, um, so I'd, I'd left the organization and then I was mm. doing some associate work that was contracted for like four days a week. And then that little gut instinct came up and went, no, nope, this isn't it either. And it's like, <laughs> oh, won't you shut up? And so I then left that organization. Um, but I think that was the big catalyst of it. It changed a lot for me just in terms of my life, the work that I do, but also in my relationship to self-doubt mm. and self-worth, self-esteem. Um, so there's a lot of internal and external stuff going on there said that some of the edges were being knocked off that yeah. self-doubt i'm wondering what shape it was in the beginning yeah i don't it was a whole thing of and i guess keep getting promoted in a big in a big corporate to senior roles with no qualifications apart from a d in a level geography it was like <laughs> i'm gonna get found out right. i'm gonna get found out um Someone's going to find me out. I'm not good enough. I shouldn't be in here. I mean, I never even wanted to work in that organization or that field. I just, <laughs> my mum and dad at the time when I was 18 said, you got to start earning some money to pay rent. Mm -hmm. um, and I got a job in a factory packing boxes. But then there was, it was just that. It was a very, I don't know. It's just like this constant shadow on my shoulder. And the, the mm -hmm. moment that it, it got its biggest kicking was when I went for my Viva after mm -hmm. my master's um and i wrote my viva about spontaneity and mm -hmm. change being spontaneous and perpetual and at the end of the viva which i loved i loved every minute of the viva because it just it just felt like this conversation because i'm just yeah. talking about stuff i was interested in 
the uh, examiner said, well, pleased to say you've passed and not only have you passed, but we've given you a distinction and one of the wow. highest marks we've ever given on this master's program back then. I don't know. It's probably Brilliant. changed since. And I just burst into tears. And yeah. it was that moment. It's like, fuck you, inner critic and demon. Yeah. What I've been held in this prison for, for this long. And then it's sort of been a, it felt like a intentionally scary, but exciting unraveling of my life for the next however 15 years that i've been out now wow i guess and maybe i'm projecting so i was about to say most people but maybe actually most people is me would feel quite scared at the idea of a life unraveling and i know i have and do put a lot of energy into holding it all together yeah you know not i try not to do it as tightly as i used to i try to leave room for it to breathe but still the thought of unraveling is still something that I have maybe a bit of a negative association with. Yeah. So what happened when it began to unravel? I mean, I, for me, it was a, an unraveling from what I ought to be or should be. Um, mm. And more of, I guess the panic is where are those constants going? Where is that illusion of certainty going? Where are all these things? I mean, the markers of being a successful um successful anyone but i speak for myself a successful man in his late 30s is job car house and all of those things so it felt like an unraveling but i for me it's i've just tuned into the natural rhythms and vibrations of what i think and what i feel and mm. the the strange way my mind and emotions work is just thinking no that's just my natural cadence my natural rhythm my natural uh gifts and difficulties and so I think it was a a letting go to let come. Um, mm. And what makes that difficult is it means that that, <laughs> that really pretentious phrase, that rhythm, that cadence, that vibration, but I can't think of a better word, but it means that that becomes more totally uniquely you or more totally uniquely me, which actually means you fit in less mm. to the to the standard ways that things work. But I quite like that. Um so I've taken comfort in that, even in even in difficult times. It's like I just, what is my gut instinct saying? What is what is the offer here? If I'm panicking or I'm finding something difficult, it's because I'm not open enough. There's that lovely Arnie Mindel um, idea of quantum flirting, which I must have mentioned to you before, which is instead of seeking, and this is my version of it, instead of seeking something like an answer or an idea, the practice is to be open to hearing it whispering. And I know when I'm in difficulty, it's because I'm seeking too much rather than not seeking. And I guess that, that speaks to that philosophy of change. There's that, that whole, I mean, it's on innumerable LinkedIn posts. And I, I, quite, I quite like it as an idea of the difference between doing and being. Mm -hmm. Stop doing and start being. The existentialists say both of those are flawed human assumptions. Everything is perpetually in a state of becoming. And that's the way that I like to think of it. I'm neither doing nor being. I'm, I'm part of a perpetual state of becoming whatever everything is becoming, which is difficult when you're running out of money and you need to pay a bill. But that's, <laughs> that's that underpinning philosophy. I think if I can stay close to that, I won't have any regrets, no matter how difficult things are. Mm. And maybe one day, you know, we can go into Boots and buy a meal deal with a state of becoming, because you know, that <laughs> there is yeah. something about the currency of that. You know, we put so much value, I guess, understandably, on how much we earn and what, what we need to survive. Yeah. What I'm hearing from you is that you had, you know, lots of small things happen that led to what for most people would be a massive shift. You'd gone straight from home into straight from school into a job. You were there 20 years, climbed the ladder. And then you just had this nagging feeling, this voice in your gut that was going, you need to go, you need to go, you need to yeah. go. What do you think helped you listen to that? Because so many people would just ignore it. I think there was, um, again, I don't think there's anything as a good organization, but there's a couple of good people that saw something in me and mm -hmm. played it back. And I know that um, and I've given up on it ever changing. It's just a friendly demon now that there's there's something around I need an amount of validation back from people mm -hmm. to believe it in myself. And so there's a number of people, one being that boss at, at, at my company that took me on and gave me a director role. And I said, really? Are you serious? Don't you know I come from the <laughs> factories? No one from the factories gets a director role. 
and she paid for my education. Um, so her seeing something in me and believing in me. And then at Ashridge, it's like, um, uh, Professor Bill Critchley, who's still a friend. Um, he knew my work. He knew me before I went to Ashridge. And he just said, I think you'd be brilliant on this program. And I could go, oh, I'm not academic. And he said, well, I'm not going to ask you again. Do you want to do it or what? <laughs> and I said, yes. And he goes, well, that's your interview. You're in. And it's like, wow. um, but again, him seeing something. And then he was my supervisor throughout all my writing. And the first things I wrote at Ashridge was so, because I'd not done a, a previous degree. And, and I just thought, right, I need to write something that's really clever and intellectual. And the feedback I got on my first assignment was, this all sounds very clever, but where are you in it? Mm. And then him and various other people on that program just encouraging me to write from my own experience and then getting good marks for that is was really validating. Mm. So I think it's like I gathered in that short period of time enough evidence and experiences of being myself is enough mm. that meant that, I mean, I don't think my gut feel was getting impatient. It was just like, Oh, I think you're ready to hear me now. Mm. So again, lots of little things. And I think mm. this is what I always joke about the TED talks. They're, they're, they're the structure of this happened, something bad happened, then this insight, and then everything changed forever. It's so much more subtle than that. Mm. And I think stuckness happens in the same way. Change happens through lots of tiny, subtle things that we don't even notice that accumulate. And I think stuckness happens the same way. So some of the way out of society's biggest problems won't be one big intervention that shifts it. It's mm. hundreds and millions and billions or infinite amounts of tiny things. And I think that's been my experience of my own change there. But that that is significant. Some people that that I've met since I left say, I can't, I cannot imagine you in those jobs. Mm -hmm. And I can't. I, I wonder what conversation I'd have with myself. Um it's like I, I, I can't imagine it. I can't even imagine having a boss now, um, mm -hmm. uh, which it, that then brings a scary prospect. It's like, oh, if I need to get a job soon uh, to get some money. But yeah, so that, that was a big significant change that I think I was open to hearing those whispers and then acting on them. And then it sort of amplifies in ways you don't expect. Are there things that you think people might see in you that you just can't see in yourself that keep leading to these conversations of people going, yeah, of course you can come and do this. And, and yeah, you're going to be amazing. Um, ask that again. The things that you might not see in yourself that others are just dazzled by. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, absolutely. Um, and I don't know what those things are now. Um, so it's almost like I've, I've cleaned out, I've cleaned out the closet of demons and stuff like that. There'll still be stuff mm -hmm. there. There definitely will still be stuff there, and there always is stuff there. Um, but I don't know what those things are now. There'd be things that I was thinking maybe I am like this, and I need that validation. But I mean, one one of the things that um, has happened recently is I've been doing my strange um, bingo machine talk, yeah. which is a talk in which again this is to do with change, my approach to change where I'm saying to the audience, it's your job, audience, to work out what this is about and work out how it's relevant to you. That's not my job. I'm going to tell some stories, mm -hmm. and then I'll tell some stories of strange projects that I've done, like the silent podcast or the um, going to live on a remote island for a month. Um, and I've done that to psychologists, to organizations, to educators, and I say that you've got to work out how this is relevant. Um, but one of the things that keeps happening is people come up to me afterwards and go, I'm neurodiverse, I'm autistic, I have ADHD, I think in strange ways, and there's something, the way you've articulated that really speaks to me. Mm. And that's really surprised me. Or people saying, um, I showed uh, my young autistic child, this or Asperger's child, your video, and it really speaks to them. So that's something I would never have known, that there's something maybe in my own, my own makeup that, speaks to people like that and that just makes me more confident in just it, it even now that i know i'll go off on tangents and not finish sentences and contradict myself but i, I sort of don't care that's just how <laughs> how i experience the world but there'll be other things um but yeah 
I don't know what they'd be. Mm. So what about a time when change happened? You were on the receiving end of it. So there's there's two that come to mind. Um, and interestingly, they are small moments that mm-hmm. are they're utterly insignificant now. Right. But was significant at the time, which I've only just realized that. So the the big life-changing change just felt like a gradual thing of mm-hmm. um so the first one was I was house sitting for um a lot of last year uh, due to a personal situation, um, which was a great adventure because I lived in lots of different places, but there's not much security in house sitting. Mm-hmm. And I was just about to move to a friend's flat in London Bridge for four weeks, I think it was. And it's right, like, okay, I've got somewhere to live for the next four weeks. That will be fine. And the day before I moved in, uh, my friend got in contact and said, actually, we've we've just found someone to rent it. So you're going to have to be out in just over a week. Wow. And that was just, that was a massive panic. It's like, mm. I don't know, I don't know what to do. And I think I went into complete denial. It's like, so I've got a week and a bit to find somewhere, somewhere to live. Um, and I remember not doing anything for a couple of days. And there's part of me going, you need to be finding somewhere. Um, <laughs> was that the gut that keeps saying, yeah, you're ready to go now? Or was this a different part? I think that was the, that panicked part. That was the the head part. Whereas the gut, mm. gut saying, it'll be all right. Right. Not just sit back and loaf and then uh, I'm so magical that things will happen. But it will be, if you stop panicking, you will find what the offer is here or the invitation mm. is here. But it's again in that moment of panic. I guess it's our body response, isn't it, in panic? We we go into foveal awareness. So we're focused mm. on the danger. I'm focused on that date of, I don't know, 23rd of August, whatever it was. Um, but that learning to relax and breathe and go back into peripheral awareness, it's like, oh, no, there's other ideas. And something else came up. And then in the end, the people that were renting it dropped out. I ended up having a little bit longer. And I just found a relaxed way through it. But in that moment, I just felt like a complete, victim um Mm. which was really unhelpful because i was completely i was completely stuck in it Mm -hmm. um and i can think i think that's the where i feel that change is being done to me where um i mean most of how we think about control as human beings i think is an illusion anyway um it's like that that old joke how do you make god laugh you show them the plan it's like (laughs) but um i think it's in those moments when suddenly i just feel that something has happened to me that's and something that feels unfair mm. so the other one which you helped me with this project recently was the glendie radio show mm-hmm. that we did so myself and joe had curated a 12-hour radio program um for glendie cabins and cottages in scotland and you provided some lovely stories and voiceovers for it and it was so much hard work i mean mm. i think it's the most hard-working project that I've been involved in and I've done some weird project. I mean, it just nonstop like, felt like 24 hours a day for three months, mm. just work and work and editing and work and work. Um, and why was that hard? What made that hard work? I think it was just the time scale that mm-hmm. we had. Um, and although my art and the, by art, I don't just mean drawings and stuff is like, quite stripped back quite naive and looks quite messy it's there's a lot of perfection that goes into getting there like that Mm. and so with every tiny bit of audio every tiny and i wanted to make the guests sound amazing Mm -hmm. and that's my job is to make the guests sound amazing i wanted the content to be amazing um and just started running out of time and other Mm -hmm. things started happening that meant that i'd have to go off and um do other things it just meant that I, i couldn't edit and I just felt that I was running out of time and I had to cancel a trip to Spain. There was going to be a trip to go and spend some time with, with friends there. Um, but it got to, it got to the end and it's like, no, I think this is really great content that Joe and I have curated here. And it got to, it was going live on 6 PM on the 21st of June. Mm-hmm. And it, we finished, we finished uploading it and pulling it together an hour before broadcast. And we <laughs> sat down at the computer and we had a gin and tonic there. And we're like, we're going to celebrate it going live. And it got to six o'clock and it didn't fucking work. <laughs> the software, I tested the software. I'd done everything. And mm. we're looking at our little listener thing. It's saying there's 350 listeners around the world tuned in. Um, I, I'm I'm doing this to make the, the, the Glendike cabins and cottages look good. 
and it just started playing Fleetwood Mac music. And it's like, what's, <laughs> what's going on? Um, and of course, so the, the first song's playing. It's like, okay, maybe it's going to go into yeah. what we meant. And it's like, where the hell is it getting this music from? I have no idea. And then it finished playing that, and it started playing Bon Iver. And it, that I just felt at that moment, I have completely fucked this project up. There's just so much trust in me put into doing it. And there's all these people listening. And then obviously Charlie from Glendike Cabins and Cottages would get in, was getting lots of messages saying, what's going on? Because I tried to stop the broadcast and the whole thing went off. And then it kept playing random bits. And that was just a time of thinking, I've completely fucked this up. And it's not my fault. It's like I just wanted to go live on air and say, listen, everyone, this is amazing. You want to know the <laughs> amount of care we've put into it. And of course, um, Joe's put as much care and effort into it as well. But I was responsible for the technical side. So, so I've yeah. let her down, I've let Charlie down. All these listeners are going to think it's terrible. So that what was, the, such a what was the conclusion moment. of that story in your head? Like, So I know for me, if something goes wrong, I, my story usually ends up with being sectioned. Right. I don't know why I can ma- I can yeah. make it fit the whole journey. It could be something like you know I fell off a curb. Yeah, not that it happens right. very often, but then it'd be like, oh, what if that had happened and I'd broken my foot and then I couldn't get to work and then I couldn't make money and I couldn't pay for my office and then people would lose faith in me and then we couldn't pay our rent and then Dan left me and then I decided I was just going to go and take heroin and then I'd be sectioned you know like I, I can go from there to there so quickly yeah what was the conclusion of your oh my god I've fucked this up I've let people down where did you get to in that moment of your final conclusion that's a really good question i think the thing that's really significant me for me was damaged relationships Right. It's like we're with Charlie Gladstone. He's he's a friend. We've done work together. It's always really exciting work we do together. It's like, that's the end of all of that then. Mm. That's the end of all of that in that moment. Um, I don't know why I'm laughing because it's not funny, no, but it's it's no, so but it, funny to hear that yeah, in that second. Like that, you're like... that is dumb. Um, <laughs> and then also uh, thinking, Joe's looking at me thinking, he's been pretending he knew what he was doing for a lot. Um, <laughs> Uh, I never work with him again. Anyone, I mean, there's been so much publicity around it as well. Yeah. Everyone on Instagram that knows that, uh, that both of us, it's like, I know everyone's going to be blaming other people as well, but then also every, it's a showcase of my work and it was mm-hmm. shit. So it was that, it was that quite catastrophizing in that moment, but not going as far as sexual. I couldn't get beyond, beyond just feeling, I think it's feeling unfair. Like mm-hmm. one of one of my big triggers, and I know it comes from childhood, is feeling that I'm being misunderstood, mm-hmm. misinterpreted in a way. Um, I don't mind disagreement with people. I don't mind mm-hmm. conflict. But it's like if that's arising because I've been misunderstood. Mm-hmm. So it's just that moment of if only, if only everyone could hear how brilliant this intended to sound. Um, and so, how yeah, how long did it take felt- to fix the problem? Well, the, cause the broadcast was for um, normally 12 hours, but we'd had like 13, almost 14 hours of content. To get 14 hours of content was recording 40 hours of content for every hour. But the problem that, itself, like when you hit, hit the oh, thing no, when at we six, hit, like, was, it, yeah. was it an hour? Was it? No, it was all you? night. It was all night. But how long did um, it take to resolve it? it? It sort of didn't resolve. Oh, right. So, okay. No, it was frantically behind the scenes. So it's like, okay. And, it's it's again that moment i am i'm good in a crisis i mean i've been uh first responder and cpr in like, horrible accident and things like that and in those moments i can find a calm and a peace and so i just needed it's probably only for whatever the duration of fleetwood mac song was and a bit of bon Iver. and then it's <laughs> okay um this is fine i need to sort this out um so like five minutes and it's just let me get on with it and then what i had to do is i had to learn how this software was fucking everything up live so it's almost like changing the wheels of a car while it's going and then so i'd cue something up and get something um and then it would work and it's like no i think i've cracked it um and then there'd be a theory no it's this music that's messing up so deleting all the music and then something else would go wrong and then it took probably about three 
of the, the first three hours to think, right, this is how I think I can make it work vaguely in the order we wanted it. So we could get the content, but it would sometimes start playing the same program twice or playing them in a random order. And the, the content and the flow was so carefully curated. Um, and in the end, um, it was so nerve wracking because it would get to the end of one program. And then Joe and I'd be sitting there going, oh, what's going to be next? And then sometimes it'd be the right thing. And it's yeah, resolved. And then it would go wrong again. And we both stayed up till probably about 2 a.m. manually doing this. I had no idea. I so, so I'm so sorry I got that wrong because I thought you you had kind of gone, oh yeah, five minutes into it, we worked out what happened. We clicked a button and then oh, we no. opened the champagne. So you were like up all night manually. So two, two, two o'clock. And then we looked and the listeners had gone down to about 30 or something. We thought, I don't, no one's going to be listening to the whole program. So if it repeats something, uh, I mean, because we timed your story to be happening at, at dawn. And so stuff like that was important. Um, and we just thought, and Charlie was brilliant. Charlie said, uh, Celevy, stuff happens. It's all brilliant. And I was thinking, he doesn't mean that. And I know he does. <laughs> I think, no, he's just saying that yeah. while he's working out who he's going to get to do his next creative project. <laughs> and then at 2 a.m., it was just, oh, we got to sleep. And slept for a bit, and then I got up again uh, about 5 a.m. and then manually did the last couple of hours and then finally put in the end of it, and it's like that was done. And it just felt, I felt so shit that next morning. It's just, that was a disaster. But I remember you saying at the time, and even though you didn't know all of that, you said something at the time that stuck to mind is, um, this will make a brilliant story when the sting dies down. And I remember that next morning thinking, that's all very well saying that, Paul, but I don't think this sting is ever going to die down. But of course it does. Of course, I didn't realise that you were being stung all night. I thought, I, I honestly thought when it started, yeah, you had fixed it. And then you were like, right, done. I didn't realise you were being no. stung every but 14 minutes. Yeah, and it wasn't even that. Oh, yeah, it was probably about every 14 minutes. Um, but it's good to hear that because it shows that the listener didn't necessarily know what was going on behind the no, scenes. No, not at all. Yeah. And, you know, there's always that thing, isn't there, about like comedy equals tragedy plus time. I didn't yeah. realise you were still in it. <laughs> so yeah. maybe I would have been less like... Oh, no, but it was it was really helpful. No, going, oh, here's really... a platitude. <laughs> no, it was genuinely helpful. I wouldn't want you to do anything different. And then, of course, the offer was, well, this was never about the live broadcast anyway. Yeah. Um, and very quickly, the next day, it's like, why don't we just get all of this content up on the Glendale website? Mm. Uh, I edited it all so it would work as a standalone thing. Um, and then Charlie's team, uh, it, uh, Glendale and Harden, got it all up on SoundCloud the next day as if that was always meant to happen. Yeah. And then people have listened to it and they can listen to it how they want. And it's fine now. But in that moment, is that... Um, so I think that difference maybe. I'm learning this through this conversation between making a change happen or change happening to me. Why I think of it differently is it's sort of my internal state that decides whether I'm experiencing one or the other. The change mm. is the same thing. It's the same process. It's the same flow of experience and interaction that I'm in. But in those two moments with the, um, you got to get out in a week and that radio um, moment was just me feeling unresourced, unopened mm. to possibility. There's lots of, it wakes up lots of demons. There's lots of catastrophizing. Um, but as soon as I'm able to, I don't know, at least get some breathing space out of that, it all, it all changes. And it is a good story now. In fact, we're going up to do a talk about that whole story <laughs> in a couple of weeks. It's a brilliant story. I'm just so sorry that you went through that. And I'm so sorry that I had no idea that that was going on all night. I'm wondering from your insight in that uh, space of those two experiences, and then your remembering of the time that you made that change, what's similar and what's different in your experience? I think there's something about... the suddenness of the other ones, mm -hmm. the, the ones where I felt more victim at the mercy of change, because there's the, and, and I remember more of an embodied panic experience. Mm -hmm. um, uh, do you know that, that scene in Jaws, the famous scene where Brody's on the beach and the, 
it's an amazing bit of camera work where the camera is zooming in but panning out at the same time. It's the moment <laughs> he first sees the shark. It's just feel those moments. Mm. It's like the moment I got the message from from my friend saying you got to be out of the flat. Mm. There was just it was just an instant. Um, with the radio thing, it was just an instant. Whereas with mm. the other one, it's sort of more of a gradual thing. But I guess both of those things were only instant in my experience. Mm. Um, if you look at everything else that was impacting that, they would have been gradual things. I think I think that's the that's what the difference is. But the similarity is, the, it's again this, when I when I can find it, that space of that improviser's mindset, using Rob Poynton's lovely model, when I'm able to let go, notice more and use everything, then every, everything works itself out. And that was present in both of those, but it was a bit of a jolt and it took more effort in the, in the, the latter two to find that space, I think. You're also um, helping me see it a bit differently as well, because actually this isn't just the, you know, one one card, two sides. Having also had a conversation with a manager where I said, I think I want to leave. That person then became a change taker. Yeah. That person was on the receiving end of the, you need to move out of the flat. Yeah. And the times when you were receiving that change there was someone in the place of being a change maker yeah. going, actually, I need him to move out. Yeah. And actually there's all of these different connections going on with all of these different relationships yeah. where we're all playing both parts and probably more than both parts. It's so yeah. simplistic to narrow it down to two, but these, these are always these interactions going on all of the time. Yeah. And we're all going through these embodied experiences. So yeah. it's, it's a miracle we ever get anything done. Yeah. <laughs> but I love the, the way that you think about this so deeply and with such clarity because you you are able to describe something that's a really individual experience and yet it sounds completely universal and i i can see things in your experiences that give me permission to be like yeah just go with it let yeah. go don't panic just be there that's yeah. so comforting yeah and that's that's the idea of everything's an invitation to something mm. else it just might not be the one that you was hoping or anticipating but you can't mm. you can't not have your present moment experience mm. so why not learn how to it's, to it's doing tai chi with life rather than trying to do karate with it i think <laughs> so my invitation now is to uh, ask you to say something about a piece of art which mm. we can define as anything, you know, I often yeah. go to like, it's a drawing, but it could be a poem. It could be a film. It could be a, a color, something that you think represents change for you. Well, I, I came up with two things actually, when you mentioned that, um, which now I'm realizing that one fits, they each fits the different type of change we've been speaking about, Oh, nice. which is, that's why I came up with two. I didn't know that at the time. Yeah. So the first one I think is when I think of that I don't know, improvising with what is in a way that feels like in flow, um, just a way of um, moving through the world with ease and grace and curiosity. And it's a Nietzsche mm -hmm. quote. Right. Uh, and Nietzsche, the Nietzsche quote is, learning to see the world as strange makes us unhome in the everyday and thereby restores it as a potential place of wonder. And what I love about that is there's three elements in that is learning to see the world as strange, which is that practice of letting go of the familiar. I mean, it's such a weird experience that we're in. You, this, why aren't we walking around all the time with our mouths open going, this is so weird. <laughs> um, but the reason we don't do that is because it makes us feel unhome and that's unsettling. It's uh, mm. like <laughs> these frail, hairless apes on a ball of rock in the infinity of space. So, but that idea of if we learn to see the world as strange and get okay with making ourselves unhome in the everyday, it restores it as a potential place of wonder. And if you're living in an experience that's potentially wonderful, everything sorts itself out. It, you, that's where creativity comes from. That's where ideas come from. So that would be my first one is that Nietzsche quote. Um, and the second one is purely because I was listening to it earlier and listeners of the podcast won't see this is a jeffrey lewis song so jeffrey lewis is a singer songwriter from new york and he's got a song called life and it came on earlier and i thought oh that'd be a good one and the opening words to life relates to the less 
favorable changes that I spoke about. And the opening uh, two sentences to the song Life is, life is a story, don't you doubt. Bad times give you something to talk about. The next time you feel you're all worn out, remember life's a story, don't you doubt. It only takes a day for everything to turn around. Mm. And that made me think of you saying, this will be a good story when the sting comes out of it. It's like bad times give you something to talk about. And it's a lovely song. Look, look it up. Well, thank you for both of those things. Thank you for the conversation. I'm wondering what, um, what's present for you as we finish. I like the idea and I hadn't realized it. Um, so I was thinking, Oh, I don't, I can't think of any big examples. Um, but that idea of seeing the world in a grain of sand and just like how much in that moment of the the one that sticks to mind because it's most recent, that moment of the radio program not working, there's so much in there. There's mm. so much in there about me, about my insecurities, about my hopes, about how I respond, about everything. And so it's just that, yeah, I'm just, again, fascinated by that. I've seen that in, in a moment, everything we could possibly need to know about ourselves is encapsulated in it. Um, and I'm also feeling energized by a conversation about change, which doesn't normally happen because I think it normally ends up being a mechanistic model-based thing. Mm. And it's just like, you don't need a conversation about that. Just read a book about that. So now I've, enjo I've enjoyed your questions as well. I've enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, Where you. can people find you if they want to get in touch? So the website, which is a portal to everything of mine, is canscorpionsmoke.com. So that's canscorpionsmoke.com. And you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and threads, which I'm gradually getting my head around. Yeah. Um, which is at Steve XOH, or one word. So much. my neighbor's washing machine's just come on. So that's well. Oh, it's saying hello as well. Maybe yeah. it, maybe it's going to run off with the printer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> writing each other audio love letters. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Exploring the Heart of Change. You can find out more about me and my work at drpaultaylorpitt.com and that's also my username on most socials, including LinkedIn, Instagram, all the good ones. You might even find me on TikTok. And if you have a good story about change, or even a bad story about change, get in touch. I'd love to hear it. You can find all my contact details in the notes for the show. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>